It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Oh. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. It used to be that presidents had to be like war heroes, or at least have served, gone to an Ivy League school and been in some weird sanctimonious noble family of New England. But in 2020, we could be facing a much different type of pedigree. Hacker-in-chief. Former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke is the latest candidate to enter the race for President of the United States. To many, he's already one of the top contenders to the Democratic ticket that will face off against Donald Trump. He also happens to have been a member of one of the most OG and most radical hacking groups of all time, the Cult of the Dead Cow. They were anonymous before anonymous stopped pissing on the seat. The lulsec before lulsec got out of its diapers and so on and so forth. Born online in the 80s and active into the 2000s, the legendary group fought against government surveillance, internet censorship, and often exposed widespread vulnerabilities to the dismay of corporations. I mean, the CDC is known to have literally coined the term hacktivism. At DEF CON in 1998, they released Back Orifice, an early version of a Trojan horse exploiting Microsoft vulnerabilities and allowing hackers to gain control of any system using Windows, which attracted the interest of the FBI. The Cult of the Dead Cow is a group of computer hackers who first came to my attention through word of mouth. I then found their website on the World Wide Web. Using the internet, they were able to create an identity for themselves as being one of the most elite computer hacker groups in the world. This website also served as a distribution center for Backorifice, a program developed by the Cult of the Dead Cow. At the time, the group also claimed to have hacked into the systems of the CIA and Pentagon. Last week, Reuters revealed that Beto O'Rourke was an early member of the group, back in the 80s, and going by the handle Psychedelic Warlord. We're here today to talk to Oxblood Ruffin, longtime and influential member of the group, who knew Beto's secret before it was revealed to the world. Oxblood is a godfather of the hacker scene, and sat down with us to talk Beto and the CDC. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. So, you know, news drops on Friday. How's it been for CDC since? I mean, that's this is the biggest news to bring you back on the map in a long time. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, we knew it was coming uh, because uh, we've been speaking with uh, Joe Mann, the author of the book on the CDC, uh, and uh, Beto was part of that book. So we knew it was coming, and people were thinking, oh, well, it's it's going to be interesting. I mean, we were actually much more focused on Beto than ourselves. We just sort of figured out, okay, there's going to be some residual interest. But uh, just like, say, on social media, uh, I, I think my name got associated somehow with one of the early tweets about the announcement. And the next thing I know, I've got like 250 new followers. And I think, my God, what is this? But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's 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 kind of crazy, but I think uh, of course we're going to get more attention, and there are a lot of people uh, who sort of grew up with the CDC, and um, we've been through because the group's been around so long. I mean, it started in 1984, so you've been around for a thousand years at this point. Yeah, like in in uh, internet years, yeah, it's uh, or in Kardashian years, even longer, but. Um, 
Yeah, I think it's because we've gone through a number of iterations. There were the BBS days, and then uh, there were the early web days, and then there was the releasing back orifice days, and then hacktivism after that, and we've been fairly quiet. And, and mostly because, you know, people have jobs, mortgage payments, kids, you know, um We've been doing a lot more work, but uh, again, the group is, uh, I mean, active in the sense that uh, we're still very much connected to either, you know, startups, some people work in government, some people work for military contractors. It's it's pretty broad, the spectrum. So the CDC uh, grew up, is what you're saying. And, and if we're being clear, it's the cult of the dead cow. Exactly. I mean, I, I think it's kind of funny that everybody who hasn't heard of the group before and they hear a CDC and they're, they're confused and think the Center for Disease Control, like what, what are those guys doing on the Internet? But yes, it is the CDC. Uh, and yeah, it's uh, going to be fun uh, moving forward, especially uh, seeing the kind of reactions that Beto gets. And you started in in 1984 in Texas. You're named after a slaughterhouse. Now you know a peek at that at those T files that are online, which I'm sure the traffic on those have changed completely over the last over the last four yeah, days, over five the last days. little while. Um, you know, you get a real sense. This is sort of like this sort of old school hacker group. You know, you say a lot of outrageous shit. It's anarchic, and and you know, how did that start? Well, originally it was just a, a very small group of people, uh, just like a couple of local guys from Lubbock, Texas. And then uh, the BBS scene was just sort of taking off, and mostly it was young guys, teenage boys. And at the time, I mean, uh, access to to computers, for instance, was more or less limited to kids who had some kind, usually who had some kind of connection uh, to uh, university towns. Like most of the early uh, hotbeds were like, say, uh, Boston, uh, San Francisco, uh, Houston, you know, wherever there were university towns with computer science departments, like every other guy I know uh, who started at that time, usually a parent, worked in tech or the math department of some university. So they tended to be middle-class young men, boys uh, in university towns. And then that was kind of the, I don't know the, not the exactly the structure of it, but you know where these things were, were starting up. And then from that, um, you know, bulletin boards were just kind of popping up all over the place. And that was really uh, the beginning of the scene. And so the, the CDC sort of hooked up with, you know, a bunch of uh, the, the boards that they had an affinity with. And the, the group sort of came from that. And the reputation for the group spread uh, in the early days through those uh, bulletin boards. I thirst for you, provide milk, but my balls love the cow. Good fortune for those that do, they 
love me, breathe my feet. The cow has risen. Wax my ass, scrub my balls. The cow has risen. Provide so Psychedelic milk. Warlord was, was Beto's handle. Oh, and you know, he wrote some pretty outrageous stories. One of them being basically something that was like a murder fantasy of him running down two kids in his car and killing them, which was really, right. it was extreme. I mean, but again, I'm not going to, I'm not going to you know, fault someone for something they wrote when they were a kid. Yeah. I mean, I think that particular story is like kind of bad Stephen King writing. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if he had been reading this kind of stuff himself. I mean, he's a really voracious reader. Uh, plus the fact, I mean, he's a young, young guy, as you noted. And, it was more or less in keeping with the uh, the tenor of the T-File collections. Everybody was trying to sort of be outrageous and test boundaries. Uh, one of the um, the first files on Demon Roach Underground, which was the BBS that uh, Swamp Rat, or Grandmaster Rat as he is now called, uh, who started the CDC, it's called the Gerbil Feed Bomb. And it's it's really crazy and it's it's, I think it's hilarious. It's still one of my my favorite T files, but definitely, you know, young smart guys who can type fast and are trying to compete about who can be the most outrageous or uh, you know just sort of test what you can get away with online. I think it's kind of like you know the more outrageous you could be, the more attention you might get, and the greater the reputation you might have in the group. So I think things were very competitive, and there are a lot of young alpha males in the group. And quite frankly, there still are a lot of alpha males in the CDC. It's just that we we've grown up and and write better than we used to. Yeah, I mean, it also just seems like it's very much so, like a lot of. OG hacking group that especially in that that early scene where it's just sort of say outrageous shit troll each other you know do as much as you can to sort of be as explicit as possible but you may not always mean what you say or what you do you're just kind of doing it to to, to frankly just to fuck with the other person yeah I, I I agree I, I think that's um especially at that time uh with the age of the kids and kind of the the direction the T-file groups were moving in. It was a big competition and a sort of gross-out party. And a lot of it uh, really was done ton-in-cheek. Uh, I remember, like, the, the first time I came across uh, the CDC and a bunch of these other groups, uh, I spent a ton of time online reading all of these files, and some were just horrible and uh, you could tell they were written by people who couldn't especially write well. Uh, and it was kind of silly in a certain way. And then I kept coming across the CD, uh, the text files that were coming out of the CDC. And I thought, well, you know, these things are kind of silly, but there's something about them I couldn't quite put my finger on. Uh, I always thought there was something a little deeper going on below the surface. And it, it reminded me of a comment that... Uh, I can't remember who, who wrote this, but there was some kind of profile in The New Yorker uh, about David Letterman. Uh, and the phrase I remember was that he's the king of knowing silliness. That, you know, you can say sort of ridiculous things that were funny and you couldn't figure out why they were funny. But then after a while, you realize, oh, it's actually a little bit deep. Um, and maybe not to 
<laughs> overthink this too much, but it, it really was, you know, something I kind of picked up on from the CDC that, of course, yeah, like it's really silly on top, but I had the feeling that the people associated with the group were doing really interesting and different things. So that's what attracted me to the CDC in the first place. Okay, so tell me about Beto and what his involvement was initially. So he was he was psychedelic warlord. Yeah, I mean, I'm maybe not the best person to ask uh, because I wasn't associated with the group at that time. But from from what I've heard, uh, he started a board called uh, Taco Land, which was, I believe, named after a, a song from the Dead Milkman. Uh, and at that time, I, th- I think it's also interesting, like roughly 19, well, eight, 1984, when the CDC was started and there were other uh, groups uh, around, uh, the, the whole sort of punk ethos was a huge thing. Uh, I know that uh, punk really influenced uh, a lot of the, the guys, very early members of the CDC, uh, just the attitude, do-it-yourself, uh, sort of anti-institution, anti-organization, um, this this whole kind of spirit of uh, sort of breaking out, starting a new way, uh, certain kind of rebellion against different forms, whether it was like, you know, government through politics, maybe you know, business, this kind of thing. Um, it was, and, and also, uh, you know, like Beto was very much um, sort of part of that scene in the sense that he was definitely influenced as a young teen by punk music and then got his own thing going on. So I just think that as a result of that, he made connections with, you know, like-minded people in that scene. And then he stayed within the orbit of the CDC for a while. Yeah, um, I mean, I think he was active, as far as I know, he was active for about four or five years. And then when he was, I think it was about 18, he went to, uh, he moved to New York. He was going to Columbia University. I think he studied English. So he was in New York and there were a couple of people, like there were a number of of sort of uh, hacker groups, that were more or less located, or a lot of the members were located in New York. There was like uh, Legion of the Underground and Masters of Deception and probably a couple of other groups. So there was definitely a scene and people would have known each other. And a couple of the CDC guys were in New York. And of course, uh, there's the Hope uh, Hackers on Planet Earth convention uh, that happens, I think it's every two years in New York. So Beto would have been, uh, you know, definitely in and around that, you know, through his university days. And he worked in some kind of ISP uh, during that time. Uh, And as far as I recall, uh, like I went to a party uh, once that uh, he would have been there. I mean, he was definitely at the same party. And I'm sure I would have met him because there aren't a lot of people, but I don't really distinctly remember meeting him. Uh, somebody posted a picture the other day of the same party and I recognized everybody. And I, I thought I kind of recognized Beto too, because he stood out a little bit because everybody was kind of like blue hair or black t-shirts or, you know, very punky. 
and he kind of looked very J. Crew. Uh, but yeah, he's always been a kind of different guy. And also, I mean, one of the interesting things about the cult of the dead cow, it's not what you would call your typical hacker group. Uh, like people come from, I mean, of course, there are people with huge security and computing skills. Uh, and there are also, you know, a number of people who, you know, they're on computers and they work, you know, online, but I don't know, we've got a whack of PhDs and uh, one guy was a former assistant district attorney, another former, uh, you know, some college university professors. And one guy who passed away sadly a few years ago was a former contractor with the CIA. So it was, you know, it was a mix of people. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And, you know, I've, I've definitely read that people in the CDC were kind of keeping this secret while Beto rose the ranks. Why was there an interest in keeping this a secret that he was a member of the group? Well, I think for two reasons. First, uh, we realized that uh, his association with a group could cause him either, you know, some embarrassment or open him up to attacks. But the other thing, and actually the, the more important reason, is that people who are in the CDC or have been, everybody is used to handle. And, and that's, that's basically a rule. And, and people with handles, like we just don't disclose you know, who is in the group. We don't attach a handle to a name. And it's it's different if uh, somebody outs themselves and they say, okay, I used to be a member, my name is whatever, and this was my formal handle. That's fine. I mean, they, they chose to do that. So, you know, people can talk about it or not talk about it. But it's just been our policy that we don't, you know, talk about who the members are. We don't put names to handles. Hmm. So you've actually interacted with a bunch of these these members and never known their real names? Almost all of the members I've met, I'm pretty sure I do know their names, but fairly often we just refer to each other by handles. And definitely, like when we're in public, if we're at like some kind of conference, everybody is introduced by their handle or uh, we refer to each other by handles. It's just kind of a, a protocol. But I think there are like some people... I know that I've I've heard their real names, but it's just that I keep forgetting them because I identify with them much more by the handle. So do you agree that the cult of the dead cow is sort of this precursor to anonymous? I mean, you know, a lot of people say you coined the term hacktivism. Well, we were definitely the, the first group to use the term online. Um, we decided that uh, it, it was something that we wanted to work in. In, in some ways, you can say that uh, the CDC and Anonymous have sort of structural similarities. We started out as sort of fun, you know, media pranking groups. Uh, and you could say that we weren't that serious in the beginning. Uh, we were just about 
having fun and publishing text files and anonymous was uh doing <laughs> whatever they were doing you know on 4chan and then at a certain point um anonymous uh decided to go public in a certain way and i think it was project uh chanology which was the anti-scientology campaign that they started so they started being more active and showing up and being a kind of physical presence in the streets and doing that kind of thing. So it actually created a huge break in the group that people who were the original sort of anonymous people uh, of 4chan were just like furious and they uh, were calling all of the, the people who were doing a sort of hacktivist style campaigning uh, they started referring to them as the moral fags. And the the insult was not the fag. Uh, pardon me for using that language, but I'm just using it to illustrate a point. It was the insult was moral, that they were doing something that was like, who needs that? You know, it's stupid. Uh, you know, you're ruining the reputation of the group by becoming so serious. So that was kind of the the anonymous side of things and the split in that group. Uh, and then back, I guess it was 1999, uh, we sort of officially started working in hacktivism and there wasn't like a split in our group. I mean, it wasn't, you know, like people weren't outraged within the cult of the dead cow. Actually, pretty much everybody thought it was really cool and was quite supportive. I think it was much more outside the group that we got some criticism. You know, lots of people think that I ruined the CDC because uh, I was sort of leading a, I wouldn't say a more serious uh, evolution of the group. It's just that, you know, we figured that, you know, we're interested in, you know, helping people who were living behind national firewalls to get on the net and, we started developing circumvention tools, and it was never to do anything than to help people get access to the net. We weren't, we didn't have a specific agenda like, you know, we want you to, you know, do whatever. It's just get online, see whatever is on the internet, and then do whatever you like. Uh, so there are some similarities in terms of, say, the way both the Cult of the Dead Cow and Anonymous got started. Uh, and there was a sort of evolution uh, in the group. Uh, and uh, yeah, I guess, um, I mean, some people have said that the, that Anonymous couldn't exist without the CDC in a way. Um, that may or may not be true. I'm not sure I have a complete opinion on that, but there are some definite similarities with the groups. And, you know, to be quite honest, I mean, I, I was really impressed by uh, some of the stuff that Anonymous did, especially during the uh, Arab Spring, you know, they did some really valuable work and they should be respected for that. I mean, the groups within Anonymous that did that, of course, it wasn't the group as a whole. I mean, there were a number of cells doing different ops. Uh, but yeah, we were both doing hacktivism of a kind. How is it that the CDC went from like this T-file sharing group to, you know, the group that dropped Black Orifice in 99 and essentially kind of heralded in this period of hacktivism? We started in 84, and then I guess it was like around 92 or so uh, when the web uh, happened. 
So there, there are a couple of, it was kind of like the shadow CDC was back in the, uh, you know, BBS days. And it, it was also a very kind of marginal thing, like really not that many people uh, were in the freaking scene and had computers and were dialing into uh, bulletin board systems. So it, it was definitely a certain time uh, and a certain community. Uh, and a, a particular ethos. So by the time the web came around, I mean, the the core group in the CDC was there and uh, there was a bit of a revolving door uh, going on that people sort of uh, came and went and there was a sort of new evolution of the group. So there were a bunch of new people and we were uh, getting used to being on the web. Um, and I think also a lot of us thought that, uh, you know, it's time to do something new. Um, what can we get involved in? At the time, Microsoft was like, the uh, it, it was a huge operating system, but absolutely the worst for security and uh, kind of the enemy of the hacking community. I mean, it's, it's very, a very changed company now. They take security much more seriously. Uh, but back then, like 97, 98, 99 in there, it was just a sort of joke as far as the security was concerned. So we decided that we would point that out. And it was a combination of putting together some really incredible software uh, and then having a sort of media operation. So it's like we were our own sort of... Uh, software company and PR agency sort of rolled into one. And it, it just sort of caught everybody's imagination and it was a big alternative party. And in, we turned into a bunch of sort of internet rock stars. So it was a lot of fun, uh, but it was a very different internet then uh, as opposed to now. There wasn't really, it wasn't a social media internet. Um, so things have changed. Uh, there's lots of mainstreaming, uh, a lot more surveillance, a lot less fun. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it was basically an evolution of coming from a, a sort of very much an underground scene into the mainstream. And I guess that was really the big difference. Okay, so we fast forward now towards the 2020 presidential election. Beto O'Rourke is, some say, the leading candidate now for the Democrats. We could, ostensibly, have the first president who was part of a hacker group. Being a member of that group yourself and seeing what's happened with the cult of the dead cow, with Anonymous, and then seeing that, I mean, does that blow your mind a little bit? Well, it, I mean, it's it's definitely interesting, and I I think in in many ways inevitable. I really think the the most interesting thing is that with somebody like Beto or or a candidate or a person of his age and experience, that the way everything is going, I mean, everything is digital. Uh, there are things like cyber war and election tampering and all kinds of things going on. Online, I, th I think most people, knowing where society and politics is going, would feel very comfortable with somebody who is comfortable in that world. And especially, you know, if 
if you have those kind of longstanding connections and you know like you know what security is and you you know how you can get the best advice about how to pretty much do anything online then that i think is a net positive i think it's fantastic i think the the only sort of tricky bit if we're talking about beto is uh, sort of opposition research and people trying to slam and smear the guy uh, for stuff he did when he was like 14, 15, 16 years old. But I think also something that's interesting, uh, Barack Obama was the first uh, president and presidential candidate to admit that he had smoked pot. You know, And at the time he did that, people thought, ah, oh, that's no big deal. And it was kind of a nothing burger for a lot of people, and it wasn't a talking point. You know, like after that, okay, the, the country doesn't care. And I, I kind of think we're pre approaching that point with uh, Beto and, and candidates like him. You know, if people talk about, you know, when I was 14, I did a little hacking and I did some phone freaking and, you know, I'm not proud of what I wrote, but, you know, I learned a lot and, um, I know how the internet works now and stuff like that. I think that it's really, like, I don't really believe this whole sort of Bedouin hacker story. You know, in a couple of weeks, I just don't think it's going to have much resonance. I mean, as, as an attack vector. No, I don't. I actually think it's going to help him. I mean, because like, cause here's the thing. It's very clear that Donald Trump has a very limited understanding of how the internet works besides Twitter. And even then, I'm not so sure. But... You know, Beto clearly does. And that's interesting because other than Obama, I don't think there's ever been a president who actually understands the internet in a way that younger people or internet specialists, so to speak, do. And I think that that is going to be interesting to see how he wields that if he makes it out of that Democratic pool of candidates. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a generational thing. Like the, the older the candidate more than likely, the less they know about uh, the internet, being online, the digital, all of this stuff. Uh, and generally speaking, the younger people are, then the more they understand. And, uh, you know, like when, when Beto was a teenager, when he was probably about 12 or 13, he got his first computer. So, you know, when you have about 30 plus years of experience online and with computers, you're going to know a fair bit. I mean, somebody like Trump is actually a perfect example. I mean, he doesn't even use, he doesn't have email. He's never used email. And although he's on Twitter, I mean, I think he just understands it as a vanity platform. And he knows that he, a lot of people, he can cut through uh, news and his tweets become the news. So I, I just think he, he views himself as a kind of uh, 140 40 character uh, publisher. So he can get away with a lot and his bully pulpit is used to bully people. So uh, I, I think people like Beto, candidates like him of his age and experience are, they're definitely the future. Uh, and I think increasingly people will trust them to make the right decisions and feel comfortable uh, that they know where society and technology is going and maybe even can help pave a way to the future of where these things are going. Especially, I mean, 5G is coming up next year. That's going to be a huge deal. It's already a, a sort of political deal with the White House trying to 
uh, hammer away at Huawei and and influence policy decisions in different countries, and like who who is going to deploy um, these technologies and what vendors they're going to use. So it's just something that's only going to get bigger, and we want people who understand these things. I mean, look, it it could be the first hacker in chief. And I, actually, this is a very interesting thing and maybe a contrast about, say, the current administration and whatever the next one is. There is no sort of cyber security czar other than I think maybe Rudy Giuliani might uh, have some kind of title. Uh, but somebody like Giuliani knows absolutely nothing about the Internet. I mean, next to nothing. And, you know, the, the kind of people we need in those positions are, you know, the kind of people who either work for the military or the NSA or some kind of computer, you know, technical genius. I mean, these are the kinds of people you want filling these positions, and none of them are there in this current administration. And moving forward, I think that's something that we'll definitely be seeing and could even be a campaign issue of one kind or another. Well, thank you for telling me about the possible next <laughs> hacker president-in-chief that we're going to have and uh, for giving us a little school, you know, old-school knowledge on one of the founding communities of hackers. Do you ever think you're going to be in a book? You're, well, I mean, you are in a book, but this is going to be some sort of weird, like, historical moment. Yeah, I, I know that uh, Joe Men's book is sort of on the history and sort of participants, the revolving door of the CDC and where the group came from and where it's going to. So I think it's it's going to be very interesting. I'm not exactly sure uh, what is going to be in this book, um, but I, I think it's going to be a good read. I mean, Joe Men is a serious writer uh, and he's, he's done some other good stuff. He wrote a great book on sort of the whole Napster phenomenon so he, he's the right kind of person uh, to do this kind of book, and I think we're all looking forward to it. Me too. Thanks so much. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. This week's episode was produced by Lorenzo Franceschi Bichirai, recorded and edited by John Northcraft. Thanks for listening to Cyber. We'll be back next week. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,